0: Somebody left a sermon on the pulpit. It's from last night's, we had an Anglican ordination service in here, and the bishop, who's a friend of mine, left his sermon. I wonder if he was telling me I needed to preach this (laughs) instead of what I got. Ah, yeah. I don't know, it's tempting. Uh, It is a joy, even as we kind of fumble our way along and try to Get together. I, I, I mean, for us to be introduced to a song like that when and not be able to, to sing, I, I cheated. I, I have to say, um, uh, and I'm I'm just uh, looking forward. I mean, we were we were made to worship, and singing, expressing our joy is the avenue for an emotional connection with God. It's the avenue for our. It's it's a way for us to be taken out of ourselves in the right kind of way, if we're singing the right kind of music. Music always has that effect on you. It has a formative effect, which means it's important what goes into your head and comes out of your mouth, and your heart gets touched on the way. So we are looking forward to that day. It's an eschatological service here where uh, we are all ready, but not yet. And uh, we're glad for the opportunity to welcome those of you back and to welcome those of you at home. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to get used to uh, live streaming these services. Thank you to all the folks who've made it possible. Thanks to the children who are in sermons for the first time in your life and uh, for being with us. Thanks for bearing with us. I look forward to seeing your faces unmasked in the future. A short text this morning from the third third chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Verses 1 to 6. Last week, we, we saw that uh, Jesus is being criticized for violating the Sabbath. And uh, in this particular moment, it feels to me like he says, oh, yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you were provoked, watch this. Listen to God's word. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue... And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? but they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. A strange way to respond to the miraculous grace of God. But there might be more of us in that response than we want to admit. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to open your word to our understanding, give illumination to our minds, but even more so to our hearts, that we might give ourselves to you in joyous obedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If I were to ask you what's difficult about being a parent, I think we would be here all day. (laughs) But I know one of the things that uh, was particularly difficult for us when we were rearing our children, it's trying to see your children do something you don't like and then try to judge the intent behind the action. Was that an accident when my son tripped my daughter Or was it an act of willful malice? Now, my children, of course, would never commit an act of willful malice. So it was easy to make a decision about that. No, it's it's so easy to parent to behavior, though, isn't it? By which I mean it's easy to set a rule and to insist that it be adhered to. And as long as the behavior complies, everything's good. It's so much more difficult to parent to the heart of a child. To reach the heart requires more than rules. We need rules. We're an undisciplined people. We need rules. But it takes more than rules, it requires wisdom. Parenting to behavior is much more straightforward. Did I or did I not tell you? Parenting to the heart is an art a mix of discernment and perseverance and patience and inconvenience. So many parents, certainly I was, have been tempted to parent to behavior because it's not as costly. It doesn't require the same investment of time and trying to understand, to make judgments of which you're unsure. Just lay down the law, you're the sheriff, you're the judge and the jury, and the executioner, all in one, the parent. The only problem is, if you're primarily concerned with behavior, you might end up missing the heart of your child. When Jesus began his ministry after his baptism, it was clear that his first concern was not with behavior, but with the heart He's concerned not just with the outward appearance, he's also concerned with the heart, the intent. So we saw how he said to the paralytic when he was lowered down through that roof, your sins are forgiven. That was his way of not just addressing what was obvious, he was trying to get to the heart of the matter, and that man's paralysis signaled that there was something deeper wrong with the world. So he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And he did it this way for two reasons. He did it, of course, for the health of the paralytic, so that once he received back the strength in his legs, he would also have a future with God into which he might walk. He did it also, though, for the purpose of revealing a small piece of his own purpose. That is, he wasn't just there to heal that man. He was here to be the mediator between our Heavenly Father and this world. He is the one who forgives sins. He is the one who heals the heart. He is the only one who can perform that sort of cardiac surgery. Or take the calling of Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. If Jesus were only concerned with behavior, how would he have treated Matthew? He would have treated him the way everybody else treated him. Instead, he sees one who in his isolation, without a people to call his own, without a place in the world, he is nevertheless ready to move toward God. If the door were to open. So instead of scorning Levi, what does Jesus do? He goes to his home and he eats with him. Meanwhile, the opposition is beginning to to grow When Jesus forgave the paralytic sin, you'll remember that they claimed that he was a blasphemer because he claimed to forgive what was only God's to forgive. When he sat down with Levi and his friends, he was demonstrating his concern for Levi's heart. His opponents only saw that Jesus was breaking the rule and making himself unclean. Here again, Jesus was concerned with Levi, but he was even more concerned to help people grasp who he, Jesus, was And the kingdom that he was bringing with him. Do you know how Jesus did this? He provoked his audience. He stuck his finger in their eye. Gently. Knowing he could heal it if he needed to. You know, when you provoke somebody in the right way. There are lots of people who take joy in being provocateurs. the wrong reasons. But when you provoke someone in the right way, you stand a better chance of finding out what's really there. You'll hear a coach, for example, talk about pushing his or her players just to find out what they're really capable of, to help them understand what they're capable of. A lawyer will provoke a witness to get at the truth. Think Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. Jesus provoked his audience Some were convicted and saw the world as a result in an entirely new way. Others ended up plotting to kill him. It might seem strange to you, but the fact is that Jesus sets out to be a provocateur intentionally. Even in the way he speaks, when he speaks in parables, it is a provocative act. His purpose is to reveal the kingdom that will not be grasped if he comes at it head on. And he wants to help people understand something that they really are invested in not understanding, and that is the true condition of their hearts. We don't want to know the truth about ourselves, and Jesus understands this. His purpose was to help us see our true need, not just for a political policy or a king, but for something more. So Jesus provokes the followers of John the Baptist, as we saw last week, who wanted to know why Jesus didn't keep the rules, why he didn't fast as they were fasting. And Jesus provoked them. He scandalized them with his answer. In an obvious reference to himself, he says, the bridegroom is here. You should be rejoicing. Why would you be fasting? What's the point of provocation? Jesus is saying that he cannot be contained in the old shell, the old structure of things. An entirely new day, a new thing has come. And you can't see Jesus in the same way. You have to rebuild around him. You have to reorient your life with him at the center. You have to see everything through him as you would through a new pair of glasses. This is the same challenge that Jesus puts to the Pharisee in their conversation about the Sabbath. Now, if a first century Pharisee were to look at you and me in our practice of what we do on Sunday, they might say, what is football? It would be a strange thing. It's hard for us to comprehend the way in which the Sabbath was held in such honor and esteem among first century Palestinian Jews. The Sabbath is a big deal. It is, or it was, still remains in some quarters, one of the primary markers of faithful Judaism, Sabbath observance. After all, wasn't the fourth commandment remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? It's the longest of the Ten Commandments, and it became the focus of all sorts of discussion. Volumes of case law were written about how to keep the Sabbath. It was trying to cover all the circumstances that you and I might find ourselves in on the Sabbath. There were 39 classes of work that were forbidden in that case law. Some, you might guess, no plowing, no hunting, no butchering on the Sabbath. But some, you wouldn't guess. It was forbidden, for example, to tie or untie knots. It was forbidden to sew more than one stitch. Not sure what you can accomplish with one stitch. It was illegal to write more than one letter. It was wrong to walk more than 1,999 steps. I wonder what kind of Fitbit they had in the first century. And of course, it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath. Unless it was life-threatening. This man with the withered hand, his life was not at risk. He could wait one more day. The audience already had heard that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. You can imagine that they gathered to sort of see what was getting ready to happen. And the room was quiet and tense, I imagine. And Jesus decides that now is the moment to provoke his audience. He made a very public display of contravening the laws of Sabbath observance. And he says to this man, Imagine if you were he, stand up in front of everyone. And then he asks a question. Picture it in front of a crowd, Jesus has this man standing there, his eyes were probably looking at the ground, and then before this man and all the onlookers, including his opponents, he asks a question in two parts. It is a veiled challenge, a provocation. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, he asks, to do good or to do evil? Jesus clearly saw that the man's condition was a sign of the brokenness of the world. He's asking, how could it possibly be wrong? How are you honoring the presence of the Redeemer God in the world by refusing to rectify this brokenness if you have the power to do so? Wasn't that the very purpose of the Sabbath, to be a sign of God's mercy and blessing, a reminder and a celebration of God's coming to heal the world? You see, he's looking behind the rules at the intent. But then the second part, which is right to save or to kill? What? Who's talking about killing? In my mind's eye, when Jesus utters this phrase, he's looking right at the Pharisees who are plotting to kill him. And suddenly this isn't about the man with the withered hand any more than the paralytic's healing was about him. It is about Jesus, who is very aware of the irony of the moment. The Pharisees would forbid Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath, even while they were plotting to kill him, which they would do on a Sabbath's Eve in three years' time. So the healing of the man with the withered hand served as a parable of Jesus' own life and purpose. As he invited the man to stretch out his hand, so he invited his critics to be done with their withered hearts, hard and cold as they were to the true purposes of God. Still staring at his opponents, I imagine, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. You know, if you tell your child to do something, it often turns into a contest of wills, doesn't it? Who's got the more authority? Who's got the power? And at an early age, usually around two years old, there starts to be a contest of wills. It gets scarier the bigger they get. I remember the time I realized, Sam could take me if he wanted to. My only advantage is that I know how to endure pain better than he does. (laughs) A test of wills. These Pharisees, instead of responding to Jesus' invitation to examine their own hearts, hardened their resolve to be rid of this threat. The Pharisees who were present even began to build a political alliance with the most unlikely of allies, Herod's men, Herod, who was despised by every Jew, who came from a far-off land, who was a a puppet of the Romans. It was the greatest example of that old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Such was the way, the provocative, provocative way of Jesus. Mark makes a point of telling us that Jesus was angry, at their stubbornness, at their refusal to consider whether their care, their careful attempts, even well intentioned to honor the, God's fourth commandment, might have led them to miss the whole point. It was not the man's withered hand that was the problem, the problem was their withered hearts. Hearts which not only had diminished so much that they had lost sight of God's healing purpose for the man. In the giving of that fourth commandment, they had also decided that they would start plotting on the Sabbath, no less, how to murder the very Messiah that they said they were longing for. How far they had wandered off the path. How committed they were to their way of seeing things. How unwilling they were to be corrected in love by Jesus Christ. The Sabbath is not our issue in terms of worrying too much about how to keep it. But the stubbornness of heart that refuses to yield to the intent of the inbreaking kingdom is very much still with us. And it occurs to me, by the standard that Jesus uses, That is the standard of the Sabbath, remembering that this world is a gift of a good and generous God, that it is meant to be a day to give thanks, to worship, to rest, and to enjoy the promise of restoration. By that standard, how are we doing? How are we observing this day and the larger question that lurks behind it? How are we worshiping God day by day, ordering our lives and seeing the world through his intentions and not our own? What would it look like to honor the Son of Man as the Lord of the Sabbath in our lives? That is the heart of the matter. Let's pray together. Take a moment, invite the Holy Spirit to reveal to you those areas of stubbornness in your own lives, where you would choose to go your own way and not yield to the the provocations of Jesus, the invitations rooted in his love for you, and yet running counter to the grain of your own desires. Lord, we are gathered in this scattered way on this Sabbath day to render unto you our praise and worship. We would also render unto you a renewed pledge of our allegiance and express to you afresh today our growing desire to see the world as you see it and to live in this world as a sign of your restorative joy. May your spirit be at work in each life and in this congregation that it may be so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.